The gospel lesson is from Matthew 2, beginning at verse 1. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and we have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. When you look at the entire Christmas narrative, you will find that the main characters are all in flux, all in motion, moving about. John the Baptist out in the wilderness telling us, get ready. Mary and Joseph traveling for the census. Shepherds out in the fields. The Magi traveling from the far east following a star. And not long after the birth, Mary and Joseph also moving, fleeing to Egypt to escape Herod's wrath. Lots of folks in the story are displaced. The wise men or astrologers or magi, whatever you want to call them, seem to be the furthest from home. I picture them pitching their tents at night, tracking the movement of the constellations, plotting where to go next. They're searching, they're seeking. Perhaps from Persia, they are not themselves Jewish, but they are looking for the one who has been born king of the Jews. Now, it, it makes a lot of sense that the first place that they stopped to look for this newborn king is in King Herod's palace in Jerusalem. Someone from Herod's family ruled this region for 150 years. The New Testament refers to six of these called Herod. Herod the Great, his three sons, a grandson and a great-grandson, all of them Herods, talk about a power dynasty. When I traveled with the church group to Israel last year, we visited Caesarea Maritima. It was our first stop on the journey through the Holy Land, and it was a pretty amazing stop. Herod the Great built quite an impressive complex all along the Mediterranean Sea. There was this amphitheater for dramatic performances with really great acoustics. There was this racetrack for the gladiator games, a very long, beautiful wall 
lots of elaborate ruins from the royal digs, and perhaps most impressive of all, this massive port with a series of breakwaters. It was hard to fathom how expensive it would have been to build this in antiquity and how advanced the engineering must have been to construct in antiquity this outpost for Herod the Great. But clearly, Herod relished power and control. Herod keeps Rome happy as their puppet king, and he keeps the Jewish people in check as Rome's subjects. So it's a little odd that when the wise men from the east ask Herod where the king of the Jews has been born, <laughs> Herod begins to shake like a leaf. He's afraid, but he isn't the only one. The story says all Jerusalem was frightened. After consulting with his cabinet, Herod holds a secret backdoor meeting with the wise men. He sits down with these foreigners and he gives them the best GPS map he can come up with. He points them in the direction of Bethlehem. And then he says, lying through his teeth, when you find him, come back and tell me so that I too may worship him. Herod is not the first nor the last political ruler to try to double-cross the people. Herod cannot imagine, nor can any of those around him imagine what kind of political crisis would surely unfold if suddenly a new king was born, a new king that would steal the hearts of the people. Herod may have constructed a lot of palaces and ports, and he may have been a brutal tyrant even to his own family, but Herod is terribly insecure. After they find the Holy Family in Bethlehem, the wise men decide not to go back to Herod the Great and report on their findings. The Gospel of Matthew uses dreams to advance the drama. Joseph has a dream saying, take Mary as your wife, the wise men have a dream telling them, go home by another way. And Joseph has another dream telling him to flee and take Mary and Jesus to safety in Egypt to escape Herod's death threats. If I had been one of those magi, I would have slept fitfully all the way home, tossing and turning in the tent, having nightmares and wondering if Herod's men would come and capture me and haul me straight back to the palace to give a full report. I wonder, I wonder what gave them the courage to take a different route. What enabled those three astrologers, oh, three, four, we don't know, but what enabled them to follow the stars and to follow their dreams rather than to follow the king's unjust orders. We like to say, we say it all the time, that religion and politics don't mix, but here at the beginning of the story of Jesus, a political ruler, King Herod, makes his way right into the baby book of the savior of the world. The wise men meet Jesus, and then they go another way, not the way of power and prestige, but some other way. And later in the Christian story, 
those who follow Jesus will be called those who are on the way. How do they find the courage and the bravery to defy Herod's orders and walk in a different way? In recent months, we have been hearing lots and lots of stories about folks who have attempted to create a more just society for all of God's children in our day. This past week, I listened to Krista Tippett interview Brian Stevenson. Krista Tippett is a journalist who studied Christian theology, and Brian Stevenson is the author of the book and movie Just Mercy. Brian grew up in the South in the church, and when Brian went off to Harvard to study law, he himself had never met a lawyer. Brian used to travel to Detroit and was sometimes invited to go and visit with three women who had been active in the civil rights movements in this country in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. And one woman, Mrs. Carr, was the brains behind the Montgomery bus boycott. Another in that group was a white woman named Mrs. Durr, who was the wife of the attorney who represented Dr. Martin Luther King. And the third woman in the group was the famous Rosa Parks. Mrs. Durr would invite Brian to come over and join them on the front porch, but she told him he had to sit and listen and not talk. And so the women would share their stories and their memories, and mostly the women would talk about all the work that still needed to be done to create justice. And one day Rosa Parks turned to Brian and she said, well, Tell me what you're working on. Tell me about this Equal Justice Initiative. He looked at the host to see if he could have permission to briefly speak. She nodded, and then he said, Well, we're trying to end the death penalty. We're trying to help people on death row. We're trying to challenge the conditions of confinement. We're, we're trying to help the mentally ill. We're trying to help children. We're trying to help the poor. And Rosa Parks said, mm, 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 you are going to be tired, tired, tired. And the other woman said, that's why you've got to be brave, brave, brave. Sometimes we who call ourselves Christians struggle to be brave. We look around and we see the injustices of our world, underage sex trafficking, lack of adequate facilities for people living with severe mental illness, children harassed on their way to school because of their skin color, discrimination that is based on one's religion. I don't know what those wise men did once they got home, but, but what I picture is that they became advocates for justice for all of God's people. I think Matthew gives us a clue to the whole Christian journey when Matthew says they took another way home. It was more than a geography note. It was a snapshot of the landscape of their hearts, of their lives. They had seen something in that house where Jesus was still a baby in the crib that made them brave, brave, brave. What do you suppose it was? When we get to that part of the story, there are no words, only actions. 
the star stops. The wise men are overwhelmed with joy. They enter the house. They kneel before the infant to pay him homage. They open their treasure chest and they offer their gifts to the real king. Before the infant Jesus, they offer gold and frankincense and myrrh. And Barbara Brown Taylor tries to imagine if there was dialogue between Jesus' parents and the wise men as they pack up their backpacks and get ready to go home, what would it have been? She imagines the wise men standing before the infant. Thank you for the gifts, they say to the infant. And Mary replies, what in the world are you talking about? And they tell her, so that she can tell him when he's a bit older, thank you for this home. Thank you for the love that is here. What they find in the manger in Bethlehem is radically different from what they find in the palace in Jerusalem. In the place of a dictator, they find a baby. In the place of a power-hungry leader, they find a vulnerable child. In the place of wealth and prestige, they find humility and tenderness. In the place of lies and manipulation, they find love and joy. They were such a long way from home, and they had never felt more at home in their own skin. They felt his love, and so within them arose the courage and the bravery to go another way. A month or so ago, I was talking on the phone with Bill Shoup. Bill served our congregation twice, once as the interim senior minister and once as the associate pastor. And Bill was a good friend of Joe Atha, who generously contributed half of the funds needed to build our chapel. Bill told me a story that I had never heard about Joe Atha. A young Joe Atha was working for the Folger Coffee Company here in Kansas City when they deployed Joe to Texas to run the Folgers operation down there. When he arrived and toured the plant, he saw every place there were signs that said, blacks here, whites only here. The signs were on the water fountains and the restrooms and the cafeteria. And Joe said, take down these signs. And they said, oh, but Mr. Atha, you don't understand. This is how we do things here. And Joe said, take down the signs now. You see, when Joe was young, he almost drowned. And the person who pulled him to safety, the person who saved his life, was an African-American man. It was love and gratitude and joy that led Joe to work for the rest of his life for justice. He had seen love in human flesh. Bill said that Joe was always ahead of his time on issues of race relations. He was out further ahead of many of his contemporaries in business and in the community and even in the church. And it was because he was saved by a man whose skin was darker than his own. Reinhold Niebuhr said, love is the motive but justice is the instrument. At home in the presence of God's love, 
there really seems to be no other path worth taking than the route of justice. And I'm wondering, for us here in 2020, what way might we walk? What is the other way for us?